Good morning. Please take out your Bibles and turn to John chapter 2. This morning we're going to be looking at John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22, which can be found on page 887 in the pew Bible there in front of you. Last week we saw Jesus introduce himself publicly at a wedding. At the occasion of great joy, two becoming one, the beginning of a new relationship, the symbol God often uses for his relationship with his people, at that occasion of great joy, Jesus performs a miracle which results in the turning of water into an abundance of the symbol of great joy, which is wine. Weddings and wine are all about joy. So in this first sign, this this manifestation, this revelation of who Jesus is, this revelation of his glory, Jesus is making it clear at the very beginning of his ministry and what he's doing. He is saying, I am joy. He's saying, I am relationship, I am life, and a life and relationship with Jesus is joy. So from the very beginning, Jesus announces, I am where you will find joy. And he declares from the very beginning, this is what I'm about. This is what you will find in me. This is the result of following me. Joy. And now we shift from scene one to scene two. And we shift from a wedding, the occasion of joy, to the temple, the occasion of worship. And just as Jesus manifests his glory in the turning of water to wine, Jesus here manifests his glory in whatever it is that he's doing here in the temple. Got to figure out what he's doing. He's again revealing himself to us. And remember chapter 1, verse 18, in revealing himself to us, he's revealing God to us. What is God like? Jesus says he's like me. Uh, See, You see me, you see God. I am God. Jesus reveals God. And so the question before us this morning is, is what does Jesus reveal in his actions in our passage this morning? Well, ultimately what we're going to see is that he's saying that he is the special place of God's presence. What we're going to see starting to happen here is the place uh, replaced by a person. We're going to see Jesus revealing that he is literally Emmanuel. Right? He is God with us. So Jesus is doing, and John is writing, to reveal to you this Jesus. Right before our passage, we saw the conclusion to the previous story in verse 11. And his disciples believed in him. Today, we will see in verse 18, the Jewish authorities question him. But then the conclusion will again be, verse 22, that his disciples believed the word Jesus has spoken. So remember, that's our purpose. That's our ultimate goal. All of these, these things about Jesus that he does are written that you may believe. Galatians 3.1, I think it's a really interesting passage in the midst of Paul just ripping into the Galatians. He's rebuking them to, to save them from their foolishness. And he says this to them. He says, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Listen to this. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. What? Before your eyes, the crucified Christ publicly portrayed? The Galatians weren't at the crucifixion. Uh, the Galatians didn't see Jesus strung up on a cross with their eyes. What does Paul mean? Well, he means that Christ was publicly portrayed to their eyes through the preaching and teaching of the word of Christ, the word that is about Christ. And so this word is now the means through which the glory of Christ is made manifest. The word is now the means through which the son who reveals the father is himself revealed. Remember, biblically, it's not seeing is believing, right? It's, it's hearing is believing. The, the ears are the organ of faith. It's, or it's seeing through hearing, and it's in seeing the Savior through the hearing about the Savior that we are saved. And so weeks ago, we looked at chapter 1, verse 29, where John the witness says, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And I titled that sermon, Look and Live. Well, this morning, we have the Lamb of God coming to the temple of God, the place where the lambs were slain, to take away sin and save. And so I want us to look at this text in light of that verse. The goal of this whole long series is simply to look at Jesus, to for a year, maybe two, every Sunday, stare at the Savior. Because it's through a work of the Holy Spirit, as he works through the word, sung, um, read, prayed, and preached, that God's people are saved. 
that we are sanctified, that we find life, that we find joy. Uh, You will not and you cannot find joy apart from Jesus. You find Jesus only in his living and active word. That means, therefore, you will not and you cannot find joy apart from this word that is about and manifests and reveals Jesus. That's why we do what we do. That's why we preach long sermons from the word. Uh, Context is so, so important to every text that you read. What comes around it? Uh, This is why we preach expositionally through books of the Bible. I want you to read this passage that we're about to read in light of the passage that comes before it. As we get to the temple, don't forget the wine. What John does here, I think, is really quite masterful and provocative. We go directly from wedding to temple, directly from revelation of Jesus' glory through the sign of the wine to a confrontation at the very heart um, at, the very, at the very city of the religion of the day. We saw that Jesus is joy last week, and we know that joy is found only in the Lord. It's found only in his presence. Psalm 16, there, in his presence there is fullness of joy. So the question then is, as we transition from story one to story two, if story one is about joy, well then now story two, how can we sinners come into his presence Holy, we're sinful, he's holy. How can we be here where that fullness of joy is found? How can we be with this God? How can he be with us? How can you and all of your sin, and there's a lot of it, there's a lot in me, you know that there is. So how can I and my sin be in relationship with the perfectly pure, overwhelmingly good God of life? And the temple is the answer. And so Jesus heads straight from the wedding to the temple. The temple that Jesus does not come here to cleanse, we'll talk about this, but to judge. This isn't the fixing of the temple, but the ending of the temple. This isn't the temple renewed, this is the temple replaced. Jesus is coming to his temple and saying, not that anymore, but me. I am the presence of God. I am where you come to be, in the place, better yet, the person, where there is fullness of of joy. He's saying, I am how you worship God. I am how you relate to God because I am God. Therefore, church, that thing that we've all been looking for um, all week, right, pursuing through social media or entertainment or rest or pleasure or reading or whatever it is that we try to fulfill and satisfy, Jesus is saying, ultimately, that thing that you're looking for, it is found in me. So let's look at him together through this passage. And to understand that and what he's claiming, we're going to have to understand the temple because I think we get the temple wrong. So we're going to talk about the temple and then we're going to see what Jesus is doing by coming into the temple and doing what he does. Just two points this morning from this text. Two points that manifest Jesus' glory. Remember 129, behold the Lamb of God. Two things I want you to behold this morning. Behold first Jesus' zeal for the Father. Verses 13 through 17. I want you to see Jesus' great zeal for his Father. And then second, I want you to behold Jesus as the true and better temple. And that will be in verses 18 through 22. What does that mean? Well, let's see. Let's look and live. And let's start first by reading the story. Um, Look there in John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. I will read it for you as you follow along. But pay attention, because this is what God wants to say to you through his word today. Verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep. And oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeon, take these away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. If you would bow with me, let's begin first um, by going to the Lord in prayer. Father, we now come to your word. Father, we now ask uh, that you would work through your word. 
Father, we believe that your spirit reveals you to us. We believe that you work um, through that word. And so we ask now that you would do that. Um, By your spirit, I pray uh, that you would show us Jesus Christ. This whole book is written to uh, manifest his glory and reveal the Jesus that reveals you um, to us. And so we pray that you would show us Christ. Father, we ask that you would help the preaching of the word. Father, help me to be clear. Father, help your word, uh, make your word compelling to us. Father, your word is compelling. We are often so um, blind um, to it, so open our eyes. Father, help the hearing of your word. I pray that we could see Jesus Christ and love Jesus Christ and um, long for Jesus Christ um, as a result of what we read. Um, Father, please um, work now through your word. Show us Jesus. We ask and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Point number one, uh, behold Jesus' zeal for the Father. We're going to focus first on verses 13 through 17, taking our main idea from 17, where we see the disciples, kind of the conclusion of this first part of the story, what we just read in Psalm 69, we see zeal for your house will consume me. All right, so first off, what is zeal? Right, we don't use that word very much anymore, but we should. It's a neat word. The English word, you read there, zeal. We saw this in Sunday school also. This is not a, transliter- a translation but a transliteration. So this is not a Greek word. This is what happens when we don't give you like this word now means this word and they're two different words. This is when a word is lifted from one language and then just kind of used in the second new language. So our word um, zealous is just lifted from the Greek word, which is zelos, right? You can hear the similarity. They're basically the same with a different pronunciation. And you can also hear its similarity to another word, jealous, zealous, jealous, both come from this same Greek word. And it's interesting. I haven't figured out this yet. I haven't seen anyone say anything about it. John only uses this word this one time in all five of his books. Um, come up with why that is. I'm interested. Paul loves this word, though. Paul uses this word a lot. And it's context that determines how we understand this word, zelos, which comes from the, the verb zeo, which means to heat or to boil or to, to burn. And about half the time, the word is used positively, and about half the time, the word is used negatively. All right, so for example, in Galatians 5.20, right, right before Paul lists the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, those are the things that characterize God's people. Right? God's people are those who have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's what the Spirit works in us. Those are the evidences of grace. These are what increasingly characterize us. Are these what increasingly characterize us. Remember, God, in saving us, is sanctifying us. He's making us like him. Those are what God is like, right? So check yourself against that list. But before that wonderful list, Paul lists the opposing works of the flesh, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, zealous, right? It's the same word. Paul uses this word positively in 2 Corinthians 11.2. He uses this word a ton in 2 Corinthians for some reason. I don't know why that is. There Paul writes, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So, zealousy, jealousy, positive, negative. It's the context of the sentence that determines which. So, zeal then is simply, it's zeal is energy. Zeal is enthusiasm, it's heat, it's, it's eagerness, ardor, and, and passion. And it is the object and the intent of that passion that determines its rightness or wrongness. So Jesus has great energy. Jesus has great enthusiasm, great zeal for the Father. That's what we mean by the word zeal. Let's see that energy in action. Look at verse 13. Here's our setting. Setting's important here. Jesus has been up north in Galilee. He was at the wedding in Cana. He traveled far, not to Capernaum, same area. And now he has now moved south to Jerusalem. He has traveled down the map. But notice the end of verse 13 says he went up to Jerusalem. Again, that's because Jerusalem was literally up. It was elevated. Right? We don't use it. When I say we're going to go down to North Carolina, I say we head down to North Carolina. Well, my parents live much more elevated um, than we are, right? But we're speaking in terms of the map. Here we're speaking in terms of elevation. Jerusalem is up. Sea of Galilee is below sea level. Jerusalem's about 2,500 feet above sea level. He went up geographically, uh, but you could also say that he went up theologically as Jerusalem and then the temple in Jerusalem is the center It was the top, Jerusalem was, because, verse 14, we see that Jesus was 
in the temple. That's where Jesus is headed. And the question is, why? Beginning of verse 13 tells us, because the Passover of the Jews was at hand. So every male Jew age 12 and up was expected to attend the Passover in person at Jerusalem every single year. This would have been now we're sometime in March or early April and we're sometime between the year 27 or 30. The Passover was the biggest and the most important of the Jewish feasts. And this is the first one. The synoptics only record Jesus at one Passover. John shows us three different Passovers that Jesus attends. And this is the first. And we know the Passover. It, it, it commemorates and celebrates the Exodus, right, recorded for us in the book of Exodus, where God supernaturally delivers Israel out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. Right? So this is the remembrance of that. This is the remembrance of what God has done to save his people then. So not only is the temple the context on w- in which Jesus does what he does, but the Passover is the context in which Jesus does what he does. And this is important. So again, here we have the Lamb of God, chapter 128, coming to the place of God, the temple, during the festival of God, the Passover that celebrates and commemorates God's gift of a sacrificial lamb as a substitute to save his people. So there's all kinds of things uh, going on here. Look at what happens. Look at verse 14. Jesus arrives at the temple. I've mentioned here, we struggle to understand this story because we tend to get the temple wrong. So we've got to figure out what the temple is and what it's for first. Because we sometimes, I think, tend to associate temple with church building. We're sitting in a church building and we kind of just think, okay, well, the temple was their church building. Don't do that. They were nothing alike. So this thing that we are in right now, this, this structure, this church building is not a temple. If anything, it would be best to associate our church building with their synagogues, right? not the temple, but the synagogues. And the differences between church building and temple are important for our understanding of where we are and what is happening. Look at the beginning of verse 14 because it says, in the temple. This is why we need to understand the temple. Jesus is not in the temple. So let's, let's clarify Because here's one of the main differences between church building and temple. Welcome into the church building. Anyone and everyone can come into this building. Men, women, children, Jew, Gentile, alike. All peoples from all places. Anyone and everyone is welcome to come in. You can come in to the church building. Guess what? You cannot come into the temple. You do not get to go into the temple. No one gets to go into the temple. Except for the priests. All right, so this is an imperfect illustration. Don't press this too far, but let me try to help us understand this. All right, say that here we have this building. Say that we build a wall right here, right, and just kind of cut this whole thing off. Here is now the temple up here on the stage. You don't get to come into the temple. Mike and I can come into the temple, right? Let's say Mike and I, as the pastors, are kind of like the priests in, in a way. Again, don't press it too far. You have to stay out there. Mike and I can come in here, not you. This is the temple. All right, and say behind that curtain... There wasn't a dirty, leaking, scary baptistry with a gaudy picture behind it. Just pretend that that's not there. We're going to fix it one day. Uh, Pretend that behind that curtain was the Holy of Holies. That's the center. Remember um, in Revelation 21, that's the cube. That's the special place of God's presence. The priests don't even get to go behind that curtain. Let's say, let's be honest, let's say Mike is the high priest, right? He's, He's got me on age. He's got me on age and wisdom. So let's say Mike is the high priest. Only Mike gets to go behind that curtain. And only once a year at that does Mike get to go behind that curtain with with great uh, ceremony and great sacrifice. So this is the temple itself. Here's the temple. There is the Holy of Holies. We get to come in here. You do not. Um, You are out there. That's the building. But the temple complex was a massive structure of which the temple proper was only a part of. Uh, Then there are all these courts outside of the temple. So say that the bottom of the sanctuary here, where many of you are sitting, is the first and the closest court. Um, Sorry, we'll talk about this later. We can talk about this some other time. This is where the men get to be. uh, This is where the sacrifices are performed day in and day out. Ladies, I apologize. Uh, Come at me. We can explain later why this was the case. Uh, You weren't allowed in the court of the men. Behind that court, for our sake, let's just say we have the balcony, which is behind. Welcome, balcony. Uh, Ladies, um, I need you ladies to get up, and I need you to head up 
It's a joke, an illustration. Let's say the balcony was the court of the women. So you have this one court, then there's a wall, then there's the court of the ladies. They could see through it, they could see the sacrifices happening, but there's the separation between the men and the women. So temple, court of the men, court of the women, and then let's just say the outside there, the walls, right? That's the rest of, that's the temple, right? There's a big wall now around this, and around this, and around this, right? And so... Um, that's the, only the Jewish people could come into that or to this and then the priest into this. Uh, Gentiles, uh, all of us, um, bad news. Right? We don't get to come into any of this because then behind the court of the women, separated by a big wall, was the court of the Gentiles. Right? Let's say that's the sidewalk and maybe the garden over here. Right? That's, that's where everybody else got to go. Right? And to enter into the temple, that's where you would first come in. Right, out into the court of the Gentiles. There would be steps and gates, and you would come up first into the court of the Gentiles. This is where Jesus comes in. This is where Jesus is. He's, he's out there. He's in the temple complex. He's not in the temple structure itself. Jesus would have never entered into this temple, and you would have never entered into the temple. So basically everyone agrees that this is happening in the court of the Gentiles. So imagine Jesus is coming up the steps out there. He's now in the court of the Gentiles, which looks at kind of the temple um, proper. What does Jesus see when he comes up those steps? Not the nations praying and worshiping God in the one place that the nations could come to pray and worship God. Instead of that, he sees people selling oxen and sheep and pigeons as well as money changers. Instead of worship, he sees Commerce. And listen, this is important. When we think worship, again, we think primarily singing songs, right? We just did the worship part. Now this is the sermon part, and then we're going to go live our lives. No, again, don't do that. Right? Singing is part of worship, but that's far from the whole of worship for us. And now for Israel, before Jesus, the principal act of worship was sacrifice. When you think sacrifice, Old Testament is, when you think worship, for them, think Sacrifice. The temple was the only place that the required sacrifices could be offered up to God. So each Jewish man that was required to come each Passover was also both required to then offer up an animal for sacrifice and then to pay his pretty hefty yearly temple tax. And so again, we're speculating some here, but it seems that something shady is going on. Right? Think, about, think about a Mets game. Right? I'm really hoping to be able to go to some Mets games this season. What's the worst part about a Mets game, though? Besides all the losing. Um, sorry, <laughs> Whithowers and Andrew's not here. Sorry. Um, the worst part is the food, right? Why do I have to pay $32 for one hot dog when I could buy a pack of eight hot dogs for a dollar a mile away in the grocery store? Why is that? Well, ease, access, availability. No food is allowed in. Therefore, they've got a corner on the market and they can charge whatever they want. Maybe that's what's going on here. Remember that originally in the law, the offerer was to come to the temple and bring his own sacrifice, but there were specific parameters. It had to be a perfect animal without spot or blemish. It had to be approved and pass inspection by the priests. It's not all that hard to imagine corrupt priests denying any and, animal, any and all animals of all kinds for all sorts of reasons. Oh, you see that gray hair there? Nope, this animal's no good. Uh, you go over there and buy one from us for a million dollars, right? Same with the money changers. Roman coinage is idolatrous. It's got the head of Caesar on it. It's got these blasphemous claims of deity. No, no, we won't accept that. Exchange that over there for some acceptable money. And oh, by the way, we're going to charge you a million dollars to exchange your money. That's probably some of what's going on here. And I think this is confirmed for us in the other Gospels. What's interesting is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke also record a temple clearing by Jesus but in each of their accounts, it happens at the end of Jesus' ministry, at the last Passover. Well, here we're seeing it happen at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, in his first, at his first Passover. Now, it could be that Jesus only cleared the temple once. And if that's the case, that wouldn't be a problem. Right? We've seen Henry's explained this well as we've been working through Matthew. Frequently in the gospel, the writers will move things around. They're not as concerned with chronology as they are with theology. So sometimes they'll shift the story to pair it with something else to make a point. There's no problem there. So maybe John is just moving the story to the beginning to make a point and to set the stage from the very beginning for the conflict that is going to characterize Jesus' whole ministry. That's possible. But again, I think it's just simplest to accept that there are two separate temple clearings. 
And is that all that hard to believe? Jesus does it once at the very beginning, and then three years later, are we all that surprised that the same system was set back up and continued to operate? Okay, so I think that there are two temple clearings. Jesus starts his ministry by clearing the temple, and he ends his ministry by clearing the temple. That tells us a lot about what Jesus is doing and what he thinks of the temple. And in Mark's account of the clearing, Jesus says this in Mark eleven seventeen: Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So instead of helping people by maintaining the temple as a house of prayer and worship, the religious authorities are hurting people by making the temple into a den of robbers. And so back to verse 14, this is what Jesus sees as he comes up the steps into the court of Gentiles and enters the temple grounds. And look at verse 15. It's a fascinating verse. Try and picture this. And making a whip of cords. You can stop there. Can you see your picture of a long hair, hippie, mild, a white Jesus, right? Can you see him? He was none of those things, right? Can you see him sitting there, just sitting in a corner, kind of watching, and just, I don't know how you make a whip, uh, braiding, sitting, creating, making his own whip? I don't know how long that would take. I couldn't make a whip if my life depended on it. Um, Jesus could. Here, he's the carpenter. He's, he's good with his hands. Here he is putting those skills to use. And as he's watching this, this commerce, as he's watching the not worship happen, he's braiding the cords together. He's tying them off. He's preparing with great intentionality to do what he is about to do, which is what? Rest of verse 15. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. So somehow with this whip, he is driving out animals. He is driving out people. He is driving with the crack of a homemade whip, scattering coins all over the place. He's flipping tables over probably big, heavy wooden tables. He's making a racket. He's causing quite a scene. Verse 16, he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Don't miss that. That's the first time Jesus uses that designation. First time he speaks of God there. That's that's important. That's, that's new. We're so familiar with God as Father that we miss how revolutionary this was. Right? People didn't do this. People didn't speak like this. Jesus is claiming a special, unique relationship with the creator God of the universe, an intimate personal relationship. He calls God my Father, and thus he's saying, hey, that house, my house. And we began with verse 17. The disciples step back, and they understand this whole scene through the lens of Scripture. We've already seen back in 145 that the whole Old Testament is about Jesus. Well, here we have quoted for us that Old Testament, Psalm 69.9, the words of David, ultimately about Jesus and his zeal for his father's house, his zeal for his father. And so we see that Jesus has great energy, great enthusiasm, great passion for his father for his father's name, for the honor and protection of his father's name, for the right worship of his father. And so he aggressively drives out that which perverts and prevents that worship. Again, even if this system of commerce wasn't set up to extort and exploit worshipers for their money, and I just think it has to be, but even if it's that, that's not the case, the place where all this is set up is enough of a problem itself. This court of the Gentiles was the one place in the whole temple complex that the nations could come and have access to God. It was the one place that they could pray and worship God. And that whole place has been taken up with animals and tables and merchants and money. Jesus has great zeal for the Father and great zeal for the opportunity and the right worship of his Father. And we'll look at this in great detail when we get to chapter 4 and he talks about worship in, in spirit and in truth. But for now, don't miss this. What is it? Ask us. Here we see Jesus' zeal and what it's for and what it's directed towards. What about us? What is it that we have great zeal for today? What is it that the church has great zeal for today? What is it that gets you all worked up? I've got to post this on Facebook. Like, I've got to post this thing. What do you have zeal and enthusiasm for? Jesus didn't march straight up to the Roman fortress. He didn't go to Pilate's house. He didn't start flipping over stuff and driving out the Romans. He didn't say anything about their unfair taxation or that exploitation of the people. He didn't complain about the unjust economic system or run around freeing all the oppressed servants. He marched straight to the temple. 
And he demonstrated that his concern and his zeal was for the glory of God, for the honor of his name, and the right worship he deserved. All those other things are important, uh, but this is the most important thing. This is the first and primary thing. Are we zealous for God's glory? Is our primary passion that he be rightly known and honored and worshipped? God's people will have great zeal for their God, as God the Son demonstrates for us the great zeal that he has for the Father. Do you have this, this zeal for the Lord? Your zeal reveals your love. Your passion reveals your purpose. Right? Check, check back and check, you know, look at your checkbook. Right? Your money follows your heart. What do you spend your money on? There's what you care about. There's what you love. Do the same thing with your zeal. What are you passionate about? What do you get all worked up for? What are you energetic about? What gets your energy and your zeal? Zeal reveals loves. A few weeks ago, I encouraged you to read the second chapter of J.I. Packer's Knowing God. It's titled, The People Who Know Their God. Right? What is it that really characterizes people who truly know God? Right? We've got to move beyond. Uh, you know, People know God because they prayed some prayer, they walked some aisle, they invited Jesus into their heart, uh, they go to church sometimes, or they say some stuff mildly positive about Jesus. Now, what does it really mean? What does it really look like to know God? Packer writes this first. I just, this isn't related, but it's just so, so, so challenging. He says, we have said that when people know God, losses and crosses cease to matter to them. What they have gained simply banishes these things from their minds. Cool. That's, that's challenging. He's not minimizing losses and crosses. Right? We experience those, and they hurt, and they are hard. But those who know God learn to read their personal losses and crosses in light of Christ's loss. And Christ's cross. And that then puts this in perspective. Eternal weight puts light and momentary into proper perspective. Do you read your losses and crosses through the lens of Christ's loss and cross, which was for you and which was in your place so that you could live? Packer goes on. What other effects does knowledge of God have on a person? He then lays out four propositions from the book of Daniel. I'm just going to give you the first one. The first one is this. Those who know God have great energy for God. Those who know God have great zeal for God. The same zeal we see demonstrated here by Christ. Behold Jesus' great zeal for his Father. Let's keep in mind who he is. He is the perfect person. So he here then shows us where our zeal should be directed. He is, how, he, was, he is what we were created to be like. He is the image and likeness of God. We were created in the image and likeness of God. He is what we were supposed to be like. So what he's zealous for reveals what's the right thing to be zealous for and what we should be zealous for, and it is the Father. Are we zealous for that which Christ is most zealous? Point number two. Behold Jesus, the true and better temple. All right, let's move on to the second part of the story, starting in verse 18. We're seeking to answer the question, why is Jesus doing what he is doing here? What is he revealing? You can see the translators of the ESV, you can see what they think that Jesus is doing here in the heading that they give to this section. And these headings are generally accurate and helpful most of the time. Not so much here. They, along with many, say that here Jesus cleanses the temple. And I'm going to try and humbly disagree. Look at it. Look at verse 18. So the Jews, in light of all Jesus has just done, the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Um, right, listen, think about it. Were one of you to walk into my house this afternoon, I'm collapsed on the couch, trying to read and rest, and you started moving all my furniture around, throwing all my stuff away, and, and redecorating my walls, I'd get up and say, What are you doing? Right, who do you think you are? What gives you the right to come into my house and move my things around? It's my house. This is a little confusing illustration-wise because it's kind of actually your house. It's the, the church owns the house, but you get, you get what I'm saying. Um, it, but as my house, I have the right and authority to determine what goes on in that house, not you. That's what the Jews are saying here. Who are you? What gives you the right to come in here and say what cannot, can and cannot be done here? 
And again, remember that the term Jews here is most often used in John not to just refer to the Jewish people in general, but to the Jewish authorities in opposition to Jesus, the Jewish religious leaders. Uh, they are the ones probably who set up this system of commerce. They are the ones that assumed that they had the authority to decide what can and cannot be done in their temple. They questioned Jesus. They challenged Jesus and his authority. Who do you think you are? That'd be a pretty good translation, a loose translation of verse 18. But don't miss specifically what they say. Look at it. Look how they do it. They say, what sign do you show to us? Remember, we saw last week, that's an important word for John up in verse 11. The water to wine was the first of his signs that manifested his glory. Right, so they're asking for some sort of proof or validation that would be a demonstration of his authority, of his, of his right to do what he has just done. This is what testimony or witness, again, another important word, remember back in 119, this is what testimony and signs do. They prove, they give evidence, they, they show. And so they demand such a demonstration. They demand a sign. Again, never a good idea. We'll see later on. We'll see what Jesus thinks of demanding and depending on signs as we work through the gospel. But some take this exchange as evidence that this temple clearing is the second of Jesus' signs. Remember, most basically, we could break this whole book down into two parts. Part 1, chapters 1 through 12, is often called the Book of Signs. It covers Jesus' public ministry, and most argue that it consists of seven main signs that Jesus performs. Though there's some debate about that, and there's some debate about which ones are the seven signs. Let me give you a little name drop action here. Uh, I had the privilege of taking a Ph.D. seminar on the Gospel of John with Dr. Andreas Kostenberger. It's not a name drop when you don't know the name, um, but um, it's a joke. He, he is, though, one of the foremost scholars of John alive today. Right? So I have sitting on my desk his commentary, the Baker Exegetical Commentary series, and it's excellent. Right? You, the dream as a professor is to be able to recommend the best book on a subject in a class you're teaching and recommend your own book. Right? Kostenberger can do that. So I got to study this with him, which was really, really neat. Um, but Kostenberger argues, argues strongly that this is Jesus' second sign. Now, again, he's smarter than me, so I always admit that up front. I will not be offended if you go with him. Um, but I, I disagree with Kostenberger here. Because um, look at what it says. Jesus clears the temple, and then they demand a sign. And look at what Jesus says to them. Jesus won't give them one. Yet. Look at what he says. Verse 19. This is brilliant. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Right, so they're confused. Verse 20, they demonstrate that confusion. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? Right, so they're, they're not tracking with Jesus. Uh, remember, this is still the second temple. Right? Herod didn't build this temple. Herod the Great began a great renovation of this, the second temple, Josephus tells us, in about 19 B.C. Still ongoing about uh, 46 years later. And Josephus says this project, this renovation, won't be finished until 63 AD, which is just a few years before the whole thing gets wrecked and destroyed by the Romans. So, so the Jews think Jesus is talking about that temple that has already taken 46 years just to renovate and claiming that he can rebuild it in only three days. But he's not. That's not what he's saying at all. They've missed the point. They've completely misunderstood Jesus, but John does not let us miss the point. Verse 21, John helps us. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. You see, they think we're still talking about the rebuilding of a temple when Jesus, as only Jesus could do, is actually talking about the resurrection of his body. And this is why the temple clearing cannot be the second sign. They ask for a sign. Jesus says no. Not yet. And then he points forward to the resurrection. And so I argued at the beginning of the series that the easiest way to break down the book of John is part 1, chapters 1 and 2, 1 through 12, the book of signs, part 2, chapters 13 through 21, the book of the sign, right? the book of the great sign, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think that that's the sign that Jesus is pointing to here. That's why this isn't one of the seven preliminary signs. This is a pointer and a foreshadowing of the one great climactic sign to come. The point here is not the temple. The point is what the temple points to. Jesus is not here to cleanse the temple. Jesus is here to judge the temple. And, and we know that for a fact. We know that that's the case from Mark's account of the second temple 
clearing. I think Jesus is doing the same thing in the first as he does in the second. This cannot be a cleansing, whatever you want to call it. It can't be a cleansing. Remember, Mark is famous for this rhetorical device that he uses a lot that's called a Markin sandwich. You know, it sounds delicious. Uh, it's not food. It's a, it's, it's a way to write. What Mark does is Mark starts a story. He'll pause that story, the first story. He'll insert a second story, finish that second story, and then come back only after that and conclude the first story. Like you said, so it's a sandwich. First story, second story, first story now concluded. And the point is that you interpret and understand the inside story by the story that is surrounding it. Right? So the inside is determined by the outside. And surrounding the account of Mark's clearing of the temple is the story of Jesus cursing the fig tree. You see, the outside story tells us what Jesus is doing in the inside. Jesus is not cleansing the temple. Jesus is cursing the temple. He is pronouncing his judgment upon the temple. He is pronouncing its imminent physical end, which will come in 70 AD, and its even more imminent spiritual end once he dies on the cross. Jesus is not renewing the temple. Jesus is here replacing the temple. Again, we have such a hard time understanding the significance of the temple to the Jewish people at that time. Listen, the temple was everything. It was the center of everything. It was the center of Israel's political, economic, social, and religious life. There's nothing to compare it to for us today. It was the special place of the presence of God. It was God present within and among his people. Jesus is here saying, all of that is found in me. He's saying, I am the center of everything. I am the center of your life. I am the special place, the special presence of God. I am Emmanuel, God with you. I am God with, in, and among you. I am the true and better temple. You see, everything that the temple was, and it was everything, Jesus is and is so much more. See, the temple was always temporary. The temple was never the point. It was always a placeholder pointing forward to what God was going to do when Jesus, chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt, or again, literally the word is tabernacled or templed among us. Again, so do you see what Jesus is really doing here? Do you see the significance of how he is starting his public ministry? He has started at a wedding, the place of joy, and says, I am the new wine. I am joy. Then he heads straight to the temple, the place of worship, the place of God's presence, and he says, I am the new temple. I am God with you. I am how you worship God. I am the way to God because I am God himself now come to you in the flesh. And so we find the first thing, joy, only in him because of the second thing, because it's only in him that we can find the relationship reconciled with the God who is life and joy, wedding to temple. Jesus is saying, don't come to the temple. Come to me. And church, man, at that time, just what, what a claim that he is making for himself. I mean, this is the claim of absolute deity. This is the claim of centrality of all of reality. And the Jewish authorities miss it. Tragically, the very place where God's glory was supposed to be revealed, here becomes the place for the one who is the glory of God, to be rejected. And this conflict that begins here is going to run through the rest of the story. It's going to be this thread that is woven through the rest of the story that doesn't um, get concluded until the end. And don't miss, don't miss this. Notice what he says up there. I didn't write the verse down. Is this verse 19? He says, he doesn't say, I'll destroy this temple and then I'll raise it up. That's not what he says. In the Greek, it's a second person imperative. It's a command. That means the you is implied. So what he's actually saying is, destroy this temple. It's a command. He's saying, you destroy this temple, or you are destroying this temple with your corrupt and empty ceremony, with your false worship, with your exploitation of the temple for profit and gain. You see, listen, we are always the ones who tear down and destroy with our sin. It's always us who ruins everything. We create the problem. God provides the solution. God is always the one that builds up and restores with his grace. And Jesus is here hinting already at the very beginning of his ministry how he is going to do it, how he must do it. He says, destroy this temple. Then it says he was speaking of the temple of his body. Right? So he's already speaking of his coming death in the second scene. 
his death at the hands of these very religious authorities. He said, you destroy this temple. You will destroy this temple of my body. He would die because of the sin of his people. He would die for the sins of his people. But good news already, he tells us, but I will raise it up. Last verse, 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus is spoken. All right, Jesus is going to tell Martha in chapter 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And then there's the question that he puts to Martha, that I put to you. He says to Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe this? He dies for the countless sins of his people, right? we defined it earlier in Sunday school, the gospel is simply what God has done for us in Christ to save us for our sins. The gospel is the saving work of God in Jesus Christ to rescue his people. It's Jesus who dies for the countless sins of his people. You think, about it, think about this, though. countless to us, not to him. Remember, he, he's God. Like he's, he's omniscient. He's so much bigger uh, than we can begin to imagine. So that means that he knows, the, there's nothing that he doesn't know. That means that he knows the exact number of your sins. He knows the exact number of my sins, which is just basically an infinite number to us. And then he knows the exact number of the whole of his people that is being placed upon Jesus, that he is then suffering and dying for, that he bore the wrath of God. We understand in justice and in our law system, right, that the, the degree of the punishment is contingent upon the degree of the crime, right? right? How bad the punishment is is a reflection of how bad the crime was. Jesus is taking on all of it, all of our sins, and is dying and paying the ultimate price, right, the very wrath of God himself that we deserved for our sins. See, this is key to par a part of what it means for him to be the true and better temple, because the temple, yes, represents access to God, but we've also got to understand, think, remember, this wall, you can't come in here. This, ladies, sorry, you can't come in here. That, sorry, Gentiles, you can't go in there. Right? So the temple is both representing access to God and separation from God. Right? Within the temple, there is both presence and distance. You don't get to go in. Right? You don't get to go into the Holy of Holies ever. You don't get to draw near ever without sacrifice. See, the temple is the place of sacrifice. It is the place of blood, substitutionary blood. The blood and death of animals symbolically standing in the place of the blood and death that we owe for our sins. You see, the sacrifices were the temporary system that God provided so that holy God could be present with sinful man. And it all pointed forward to this moment. It all pointed forward to Jesus Christ, the true and better sacrifice, who would bleed and die in the place of his sinful people so that they could be forgiven and live and be with God. Behold the true and better temple and behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the true and better sacrifice. And so now in this scene, it's amazing. The Lamb has come to the temple, the place where the lambs were slain. The place where his zeal for his father, listen, that doesn't just mean he's just kind of so caught up and consumed with, with passion. No, it means that he himself will be consumed because of his zeal for the father. He will be consumed on the cross for our sins. And that's the gospel, the good news of what God has done in Jesus to forgive our sins and restore us to life-giving relationship with him. Right? It's not about you being good enough. It's not about you working really hard to prove yourself. You can't. You're not good, and I'm not good, and I'm probably the worst among us. If Paul could say he was the chief of sinners, then I think we can confess that as well. The gospel is not what you must do or need to do. The gospel is what God has done for you to rescue you and to save you. By not requiring anything from you, but by providing everything for you in Jesus Christ. And he says, come and receive and believe. That's the gospel. What God does to save us sinful people. So Jesus dies, and he rises again. And in so doing, listen, he ends the temple. And he ends, this is what the book of Hebrews is about. He ends the need for the whole sacrificial system. And he ends any need on your part to do anything for your salvation. Only receive and believe what he has done on your behalf. And so Jesus' question is the question that we all must answer. Do you believe this? Just as the Jews had to come to Jerusalem... You have to come 
to Jesus. There is no life apart from him. There is no access to God apart from him. First story, there is no joy apart from him. So have you come to him? Have you come to him in repentance and faith? Church, do you see the great zeal that Jesus has for his father? Church, what are you zealous for? Do we have great energy for God? In part, we need to repent. And we need to ask him to forgive us and to help us and to open our eyes to his all-surpassing beauty and glory. We give great energy to that which we are most concerned. I give my energy to my family, I give my energy to the church, and then I give my energy to books. There we go. That's basically me. Right? We give great energy to that which we are most concerned. What do you give great energy to? Let's pray that we would be most concerned about God and his glory. Church, do you see Jesus as the true and better temple, the true and better sacrifice? Do you know and rest and delight in the fact that in Christ, God is with you always? That's the ultimate outcome of what happens here. Surely I am with you always to the end of the age. I will never leave you nor forsake you because Jesus Christ is God with us. We don't don't have to go to the temple anymore. We have the spirit. We have Christ within and among us, the temple, the church, the people of God. Do you know that Christ and God is present with you always? And do you you find great comfort and delight in that never-failing, never-fading presence? In Christ, you are never alone. In Christ, your sins are all and always forgiven. Do you see him as your center? Listen, the whole of the Jewish life revolved around the temple. The whole of the Christian's life is to revolve around Jesus, the true and better temple, because he is that good. He's already told us and shown us that he is joy and that he comes that we may have his joy, full joy. If you are not finding that joy, then maybe you're not looking for it in him. Then maybe you're going to the wrong place. Maybe you're not coming to Jesus. And he invites all of us because he is so kind. Come. We saw it at the end of Revelation. Come to the waters. We saw it in Isaiah 51. Come and drink and live. We come to me and I will give you rest. He has shown us here that he is everything but he is god himself with us let's pray that we would find our everything in him if you would bow with me and let's let's close gracious heavenly father we need your help we need you to both confront us with your word we need you to comfort us with your word father we need your grace father we thank you for giving us these wonderful revelations and manifestations of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that we would see, and I pray that we would believe, and I pray that we would rest and that we would rejoice in Jesus. Help us to see Jesus as the true and better temple. Help us to see him as the true and better sacrifice. Help us to see him as our center and and as our everything. Um, Father, we so often uh, fall short. Uh, Father, I always uh, preach better than I I practice. Um, Father, help us, Lord. Father, help us to believe in him. I pray that our response to these first two revelations of Jesus would be the disciples' response, that we would believe in him and that we would rest and trust um, in him. I pray that you would comfort your people now, Uh, comfort especially those who are hurting, those who are suffering. Comfort them with the promise of your presence and of your goodness, that you are with them, Lord. And I pray that you would give them eyes to see and the faith to believe and to know um, that you are with them um, because of what Christ has done to solve our sin problem, to solve our separation. Father, we thank you that the veil in the, curtain, in the temple has been torn. We thank you that we have access and that we can approach you boldly as your children because of Jesus Christ and, and, and what he has done. Father, help us to find great delight and great joy in him. And we ask and we pray this all and only in his name. Amen.